Erica, you said your daughter said something really interesting. Um, oh, yeah. yes. The other, we also talked about opening with what did CJ say last night? So last night's story is as we're going to sleep, she goes, Mom, I'm having trouble sleeping, but I want to dream. And I said, okay, what do you want to dream about? And she goes, unicorns. I've never ridden a unicorn. I like to do that. I said, get on with your bad self. That's a great, that's a great idea for a dream. She goes, also rainbows. I said, bring it in. She goes, also Jesus. I said, get him in there. And she ends with one final thought for her dream. Umbrellas. Girl <laughs> took a sharp decline on that dream. Like you were you were headed up there. And so this morning I asked her what she dreamt about and she said monsters trying to get her. So oh no. Somewhat of an epic fail, but she shot for the stars. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what CJ said last night. There you go. Perfect. And what a way to open. And now I have to segue that somehow into frustrations and realities with SOW. All right, let's get started. Hi, everyone. I'm Saad, the marketing team here at Utmost. Um, purpose of these um, webinars, kind of Q&As, is just to be an educational series for you to chat and learn about parts of the contingent workforce and um, to bring on special guests, in this case, uh, Stephen, this week. Um, so I'm going to hand it over to Erica and Stephen, really, so they're going to be the ones doing most of the talking and discussion um, for the purpose of this event. So thank you all for joining. And Erica and Steven, if you could please introduce yourselves. Awesome. So hi, everyone. Erica Novak. I'm head of client services here at Upmost. Uh, been kind of doing contingent workforce for over the past 15 years. Uh, have, have helped build programs internally at eBay and LinkedIn, and then did some consulting with Brightfield Strategies before, before joining Upmost and attempting to build the new technology. So this is my lifeblood. I love talking about this, and I love talking with other people. So excited to be here. And Stephen, why don't you, why don't you share a little bit about yourself? Great. Thank you all. Well, first off, thanks everybody for joining. Really appreciate it. Um, my name is Stephen Kekich. I've been in the contingent workforce um, area probably for about the last seven or eight years since I moved out to the Bay Area with some, some big tech clients and, and other people like that. Um, but the great thing about uh, this area is I've been in both the HR side and the procurement side. And so I feel like I've got a little unique understanding and some of the forces that uh, pull each of us in different directions. So hoping I can share some of those thoughts today. Excellent. And that's one of the reasons why I love having you on is that I don't think a lot of people have both. Usually they start in procurement or they're in HR, right? So you have a nice blend of both. So we'd love to get your perspective on, on what you see. You've owned programs in both of them. So what's different? Well, how does pro, uh, procurement focus their programs versus HR? And how have you been able to blend your two perspectives into some of your more current programs? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you know, typically procurement organizations are in finance, right? And um, one thing that, that procurement organizations are responsible for is savings. And I've been part of many organizations where that's 80% or 90% of what you're graded on, right? It's, it's not about the deal. It's not about risk. It's not about even value. It's just about give me that savings number every year. And those for me aren't places where I want to um, you know, stay for a long time. And so if I was ever found myself in one of those places, I, I found a better opportunity. But, um, you know, that's not what procurement is all about um, everywhere. And so I think uh, I, I struggle with trying to um, empower people within those organizations to, you know, how can you make 
known the soft benefits and the value that you're providing because it's really not all about that savings. It's about what is the product that I'm getting out of it, right? And I'm not going to say it quite right on the air here, but if anybody's seen Tommy Boy when he's selling that that box of auto parts, you know what I'm talking about. You can put a nice label on anything, but at the end of the day, it still is um, a pile of something else. So um, as you move over to HR, right, a lot of it is about user experience. It's about processes and procedures. And people who know me, I'm, I'm the last person I ever thought would have been in HR. Um, I'm, I'm blunt, I'm, I'm straightforward, I'm to the point, I don't care about others' feelings. Um, multiple girlfriends have broken up with me because I don't express myself. But um, you know, having to deal with those types of things has been a very good professional growth for me. And I think um, you, know, you find the value in that, hey, we need to provide somebody with a great experience, but we can't do it at a cost of you know, all of these other things, whether it's time, whether it's resources and stuff like that. So I think um, you know, as you look at the HR organization, it's things that are completely different than the procurement organization. And um, companies that do it right, I think they have a good blend between the two. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So kind of moving to value, because I agree with you. Sometimes that $300 an hour person is the right person, even if it's not within, uh, per se, like a bill rate range that's approved or so. When you think mm -hmm. about the value versus the cost, right, quality, speed, what are you going to focus on or so? So talk to me a little bit, because one of the topics that we wanted to really focus on today is the idea of the statement of work modules at a VMS. I think there's been a lot of uh, missed expectations you know, it's kind of on the maturity model that SIA talks about is this is the next level. And there's been some disagreement on that. Like, is that actually the next level of maturity? Can you still mature in a different way? And so what I think people who are joining this wants to hear about, what are some of the realities of it? So to start off, let's talk about the value, right? So if you're from the procurement or HR organization, what would be the value of looking to add on the statement of work module to your contractor module? And actually, let me stop there just to make sure we're we're defining our terms in a way that everyone is on the same page. I'm gonna talk about the contractor module with staff augmentation, right? The temporary workers, your contractors, kind of what the VMSs were built upon, time and materials. I'm searching for one person, maybe 10, but it's role-based. When I think about statement of work, I wanna think about more about the professional services and outsourced projects. So not even that independent contractor use case. Let's talk about the larger uh, SOWs coming through this module. That sounds fair to you, those two different definitions? Yeah, I think that sounds fair. And as I've talked to, you know, different companies in the Bay Area and just globally, it seems like usually there's a segmentation of three or four different types of workers. And so you've got that temp, you've got what we call deliverable based SOW, PVCs. I mean, there's all kinds of things that um, people call them. And then uh, there's, there's that larger outsourced bucket, right, where a great example would be um, call centers or customer service or just large, large pieces of business that you're kind of outsourcing. And then, of course, we've got ICs, right, who are completely different story. But I, I think the, the number one value for bringing things into a program is data in the centralization of processes, right? The reality is, is any time that I've, I've implemented this or talked to other people about it, a lot of the data surrounding the, the SOW module is unknown, right? It's unknown as to what type of, I know that I'm spending a hundred million dollars on consulting, but is it big data? Is it legal? Is it this? Is it, you know, what are those segments that I'm spending on? 
And, and the reason why this is all important is because if you don't have data, you can't make informed decisions. And ultimately, I think there's several steps. And as you kind of go up the pyramid, first, you need that base, that foundation, so that you can do more of the value add activities. And what a lot of organizations don't have around consulting labor is that, that data to really replicate on. I can tell you, oh, you know, um, vendor X does $8 million of business, but I might not even know what type of business it is and if it's replicatable, right? Is that $8 million worth of spend something that I as a procurement person should actually spend my time on investigating and, and providing more value for and negotiating? Or is it so disparate or it's so, um, you know, just it is what it is that I, there's other places where I can spend my time and energy. Um, I also think from a process perspective, if you think about your end users, they are going through maybe different legal processes or, or contract channels or things like this. And if you can do some simple things where a centralized organization is able to approve a contract or a template or just, just make things more efficient, you can remove time and energy that they're spending on those things. Um, and ultimately, it's just it's better for everybody in the long term. Okay, and so that's the value proposition. I'm hearing I'm hearing data and kind of process centralization or standardization. So Absolutely. that's the win. Talk to me about the discovery. So everyone's on board. You've selected your uh, VMS already in place. So you said yes, we're moving forward. That what are the discovery activities like? Like what are they? What are they asking? Who are they including? And what are you trying to determine as you start to build out this functionality? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think you can kind of go two ways, right? One is um, don't, don't really ask too many questions. This, this is going to be counterintuitive to a lot of people, right? Let's not make a bunch of decisions on what we don't know. Right? The, the point of moving towards this is to say, what is a, a basic process and what are the standards that we think we want? And let's, let's implement them. And especially if you think of um, Agile or you think of these tech companies, it's more about building and building. And I'm one of those types of people that, hey, if we can do it better than yesterday, then, then let's make that step. Now, um, that's not always the most efficient thing to do, but it's saying, hey, let's, let's take a step up, let's reset, and then let's get to where we, we can determine what that next step is. And I think a lot of people overcomplicate things more than they need to. Um, a, a lot of people on this call probably have day jobs. They're doing a lot of other things. You can't spend two years figuring out what this is. I mean, you can, I, I choose not to, right? So I'd rather kind of do smaller steps more quickly and have an iterative approach. Um, I realize that's not the case for everybody. I think the other, the other thing that I would tell you is, um, it's always worked best for me when you have a champion, right? When you have somebody within the business um, or one organization that has a meaningful stake with what and you're let in. Me, and let me pause you that because if you think about it, procurement's kind of the business. So if you're in procurement, do you mean a business, like a high volume contracts person, like a not in procurement who's implementing this, but who may be on the product team, who, who is hiring a lot of people. So it's outside of your org, even though you kind of are buying this for yourself, right? Well, I, I would tell you this, um, procurement is an expense, right? And at the end of the day, we don't have the power 
regardless of what anybody will tell you that, you know, someone that drives revenue and, and adds to the bottom line. And so if you have one of those people, um, you know, at a, at a VP level, at, at a, a position of power or even of influence, right? It's not necessarily about title, but they, they command a lot of spend or they have firm relationships. Um, working with them to get to this point is, is, is necessary, right? It's almost required. Procurement goes and tries to do this himself without that support. It's just not gonna work. Okay, no, that's helpful. Talk to me about change management because I hear what you're saying, right? Hey, don't over-orchestrate, don't over-engineer, kind of centralize and figure it out as you go. But there's a big part of change management because not everyone will agree with that idea, right? So if you're going to say, we're going this way and we'll iterate, what are you sharing with the business, your procurement teams around change management of here's what we're going to go forward with and here's what the implementation timeline? Because I think that's where there's a lot of hiccups, right? There's an idea of it's going to be this way and either change management doesn't occur in the way it does or we're missing something on set expectations. So talk to me a little bit about what that plan looks like. To add to that, Erica, we have a question from Shirag that I think fits in really well here is, um, what did the journey look like to get businesses and supplier or business and suppliers on board? I think that lines up well. Great. Well, that's a great question. I think um, anytime you're doing this type of activity, it gives you an opportunity to reset, right? And you, you get a chance to reset your standards. You get a chance to reset your supplier base. You get a, a chance to reset your policies and stuff like that. And so um, from an approach standpoint with change management, I think, again, it's, it's specific to what works within your organization. So I'm going to give you both ends of the spectrum, but think about you know, steering a big ship. And a lot of these companies are big ships. If you do a little at a time, you can ultimately get to where you, you're going, but sometimes people don't put up as big of a fight because you get there gradually, right? And you kind of build them up to it. And that's one thing I've found in, in my time at a lot of these large organizations is even though you, based on your experience, you can provide the data, you, you know that this is the right thing to do, right? You can, again, build a business case, you can get, get stakeholders to um, support you. It usually takes four or five steps to actually get to where you wanna go. Um, and, and you kind of have to prove yourself along the way. So I think from a communication standpoint, what, what I've, I've seen be successful is let's, let's get a win, but it's, let's not go too far out and break everybody's you know, vision of what something is, but show them the value and then get the credibility and continue to move on there. Um, so I think that's, that's what's worked before. Another way to look at it too is I know there's some organizations where they're very inclined to do a test case, right? Can you get one business unit or, or something to do and then look to expand? Or some of these uh, uh, clients that are in different countries, you know, can I take Americas or where am I growing? Where do I have a lot of um, oversight that's needed, right? Maybe with all the stuff that's happening in the UK, right? You say, hey, I want to take control of that spend. Um, and make sure that independent contractors aren't, aren't getting out there and, and, you know, do that. And so you've got a business case for that. And then you can see how it applies to the rest of your organization. Let's hit the second part of Shirag's question because the suppliers, yeah. right? I think yep. that is what gives a lot of people trepidation. Oh, getting the staffing suppliers on board with the percentage of spend and depending on how you, you, you price it. 
Now you get the staff. Now you get the larger suppliers. Now you get some big heavyweights who are spending millions. And now you're saying, come through this different door, right? Sure. And we haven't quite hit on whether it's your procurement team facilitating your MSP. So I do want to hit that secondly, but let's talk okay. about what you're communicating to the suppliers about this new process and how, how does that go and what resistance have you felt? Well, I, I think the first thing you have to do is you have to talk to your suppliers, right? Any, any good business owner or procurement person would tell you, um, let's make sure this has some value to them, right? And they have to understand why they're paying and playing or, or whatever it is for that. And so um, I know that as I've done um, preferred supplier RFPs or, or vendor consolidations or things like that, um, the first thing you do is talk to them and make sure that the process fits them. I think at the end of the day, um, you know, with the amount of spend, suppliers, you know, this isn't a new thing. They'll, they'll, they'll figure it out and they'll get there. And quite frankly, if they can't, um, then maybe they're not the right supplier for you, right? What um, is the value to them? So if you're trying to sell, this is good for the supplier. What's, what's the value to them? Um, I mean, it's a good question. I think the value to them is I'm looking to consolidate my supplier base and to work less with, with better, stronger suppliers, right? And, and typically how I've gone into these types of situations is I've said, I don't have the data in the system to know who's good and bad. And so I'm going to reset. I'm going to redefine what that is. All the suppliers get an opportunity, hopefully a fair opportunity to participate in the space. And then as we make um, consolidation or cuts in the future, then you're going to be a part of that, right? So part of it is just the larger scale. I, I want you to be a part of this business and, and I'm going to, how do I want to say this? As you've got a, a larger overview of the spend, right? You're able to encourage or supply opportunities to these suppliers for places where they wouldn't have had that before. Because with this overarching function, you're able to provide business owners with data these people are actually doing good based on your metrics or these people aren't, right? And so now you've got a value proposition for the suppliers to say, if you are performing well within other areas of business, I now have the ability to provide you with new opportunities because I now have that data. And I can really say, I feel strongly about this and I can show somebody within my organization to do that. I would say, you know, from a, a process and efficiencies standpoint, there are some business or there are some improvements there, right? If, if you can get on a standard contract with people or some of those types of things to make things go faster, you're, you're taking that timeline to get their people active and, and on project reduced. So hopefully you're putting money in their pocket as well, right? I think that's what I've seen the most is people say for like the value to the supplier is just even they'll say, you know, you, we maybe will shove things to, it usually takes one or two years to get the right data. So it's, it's a long-term thing for a supplier, but the immediate value, you're right, is the contract efficiency. You're in here, we can get more work to you, you speed it up. So it's not these three to four to six month contract cycles. Yeah, How and I think, I think we all know in business, right? A lot of things that you do, you plant seeds, right? And um, they don't always bear fruit or they don't come to fruition, but that's one of the things that you're asking the suppliers to buy into and do. And hopefully you've 
form the relationship and the credibility that they buy into it and they believe in it. And, you know, I, I would just challenge all of the procurement people or, or even not the procurement people, you know, don't be thinking about beating the, the crap out of suppliers in, in six months. You know, let's think about the long term and um, they, they need to make money too, but we want them to do it in a way that's not egregious and where we're getting um, great quality from them. Let me combine a couple of thoughts that you've said and a little bit of Sharab, because we know there's power players out there in the supplier world who will say, nope, not playing, get to make me. And they'll kind of try to arm themselves with the business people in your team saying, I'm not going to go through this program. I want to go separately. How do you as, and let's say this is either HR or procurement, how do you as a CW program owner kind of bring those business teams who are working with those suppliers to say, it's us together saying you need to do this, not you with the supplier saying we're not going to do this. Because we know that happens quite a bit. A small group yeah. going to the SOW and even staffing module. And then there's folks who fight it and try to say, I don't have to because you're senior VP of something says I don't. How do you, how do you help? What's the advice that you give people on that? So when I started, I fought tooth and nail on things like that. And I thought it was my mission to control everything. And now in my wiser years, um, as some of the gray hairs are coming in, um, you know, I just, I just don't really care as much. Um, I think at the end of the day, I'm not here to control 100% of the spend. I, I am a support function, right, in, in procurement, and I'm here to help consolidate. I'm here to help standardize. I'm here to help inform stakeholders. And at the end of the day, um, they have to make the decisions that are best for their business and, and what they see as appropriate. And so I've, I've gotten away from trying to fight. I think uh, I'll tell somebody, I'll tell them a second time, I'll provide them data. And if they still want to go and do their route at the end of the day, you know, they, they have to answer to somebody else for those types of things. And, and I'm just not too worried about it. And I've, I've accepted the fact that there are some places that just aren't worth the fight and the time and effort to get it. And so as I look at these types of things, um, you know, I, I'm not worried about the 100% anymore. And I think I, I challenge everybody just to think about that, right? There is a critical mass. There is a place where um, you can get to and, and be very satisfied. And ultimately know you're providing a great value to the company. No, and I like that. When we were ch chatting a little bit earlier, you had mentioned if you'd move the bar from 20% to 80%, it's a phenomenal change, yep. right? And so an 80 to 100, the probably value you're going to get on that is much smaller, but be proud of that movement, right? It's not, it's not, a, not a failure if you haven't closed the loop on every single thing. So I'd give a yeah, I want to jump into some questions we have from the audience. So um, Sean asks, with most large organizations having low or no visibility into hundreds of millions of professional services spend and an obvious business case for saving tens of millions simply from gaining visibility as the bottom layer of the pyramid, as you've described, why is it so hard to get C-suite to lead the charge and use technology and governance in order to accelerate adoption? Wow. Um, I mean, that's, that's a great question. I think, um, I mean, there's so many ways you could go with that. Um, 
part of it, part of it is organizational. I, I was with um, um, a, a growth company in the Bay Area, and um, you know we could get money to do almost anything, right? And the approval process in the business case to do some of those things in a, in a growth mode was much different. Um, also working in, in financial services, right? There's places where um, mitigating the risk and um, you know, just making sure that the governance and compliance is there is much more important. So you know, there's some companies that honestly don't really care about savings, right? There's other companies that, and, and when I say don't care, I mean, it's not their priority, right? This is again, me, me speaking bluntly a little bit, but what, what you really have to look at is what is the thing that, that is going to move the needle for those people? And, and what derives value within the organization. And while to you and I, um, it, it obviously is savings and there's huge opportunities for it. Some people just don't resonate with that. So I think looking at the business case and, and trying to understand what those different levers are that some of this can impact and how it applies to the C-suite. And maybe, maybe you're going too high, right? Maybe it's finding, again, someone that's really influential within the business or, or somebody that does have a lot of spend and just getting them on board and saying, hey, we'll, we'll do it for you. I know when I was at another company um, that was very, very large, trying to tackle anything globally just didn't happen. And so what we did is we took a subsidiary. We took one of the business units that was the highest growth, highest you know brand name recognition, one that I'm sure many people here use. And we got them on board with it. And the thought was, hey, if we can solve this for them, done, right? Because they have the toughest use cases, they have a good amount of spend and everything that we do here should be applicable, again, to 80% of the rest of the company. So maybe that's a different way to, to think about it. And if you have other questions, I mean, feel free to ping me. Excellent. Yeah, sorry. I think this might have to be our last question is now that this one is from Scott of what level of expertise in the mechanics of individual SOW service categories should be expected from the sponsor of a contingent program looking to expand into SOW? Um, I mean, that's a great question. I think it goes back to Erica's um, question of really the who who governs this or who controls it, right? And I've been on both sides of the fence. I've had an MSP do it, and I've also had internal programs do it. And um, the majority of people are gonna use an MSP, and I think that's probably the right decision for most companies. And the reason for that is, is because they do it for so many other clients, they have this global expertise, and they can pull in insights and, and people very quickly to help support that. And so I would say, um, you know, the owner of the CW program or process doesn't have to know all of that, bring in the experts, right? The, the CW program can lead the way with policies or procedures or efficiencies or kind of translating what's important to the business and, and then having others execute that for them. Um, and so, again, I think an MSP does that very well. Um, as long as you can agree to what those requirements are and, and what you want them to do. Um, you know, sometimes it's, it's very transactional. I just want someone to be there and um, 
communicate with the worker or with the, the stakeholders and make sure all of the things are filled out correctly. Then you go to the other end of the spectrum where these are people that actually have procurement knowledge and expertise and help can build the deliverables of an SOW, right? And so there's a lot of extremes that you can go to. Um, I do want to touch base on why would you do it internally, right? Why would, why would someone ever want to take this on? The thought process when, when I did it at um, one of my stops was we can do this better, cheaper, and we have more ownership with, with what we're doing. Now, the caveat I'll say there is what we were working on there was much tighter. It was just um, uh, temporary workers and, and it was basic program information. And so we didn't necessarily need the knowledge base and the skill set that other companies would need. And so it, I don't want to call it like level one or level two, but it wasn't, you know, the top of the pyramid again, where I think if you want to move faster and, and do some of those things, um, an MSP is absolutely the way to go because that's not an expertise of, of a lot of us here. Yeah. And let me just add one more thing that I think for the listeners to understand is, you're right, internal versus MSP. But for your MSP team, if you're expecting them to have a procurement expertise, it's a very different price, right? Yeah. So when you go in to negotiate of who are those people and what are their skill sets, again, it matches kind of the function that you're asking them to do. The, the more you go up, the higher price it's going to be. And so to expect this type of functionality and, and experience at this price is incredibly unrealistic. Let me ask, let me close out with just one last question for you is to those who may be going to RFP, right? Those who are kind of going through demos, what do you wish you would have asked that you uncovered later that you would encourage folks to say, ask early, look early, decide early before you kind of either make your decision um, or make sure that you understand this. What's something that you can help guide? Um, I was thinking about this and I think you actually said something that was super impactful here is this isn't going to be a short-term fix, right? It, it takes a while to, to get this and to get the data and to get the process to where, where you want to go. So I think the, the one thing that a lot of people go in is when you maybe implement a temporary program, right? It's, it's, a little more simple with with the rate card or, or with some of those types of things. But if you think about the complexities of an SOW and, and what a lot of organizations do, either the change management of saying, hey, these are now the standards that people have to follow is, is very, very difficult. And it, it really doesn't make sense in a lot of companies to to just implement that full stop. I think, again, where I've seen success, um, and maybe this is the Bay Area where people are just a little bit more warm and fuzzy, but you, you tell them, hey, I'll let you do it this time. Here's the grace period of six months, but this is what you need to do in the future. And then these are the standards that you're gonna have. And so you don't change things overnight and, and just being able to, um, understand that that these things take time i think was one of the biggest challenges that that i had because i expected to see some results a little bit more quickly and then the other thing i'll say too is all of the clients are, are different into what you're trying to get out of this and you know i've been at places where we said 
if it's an SOW, it has to be deliverable based. We just won't allow TNM, right? It's just not going to happen. So if you're going to do TNM and you have to have that, it's going to be temporary work. And with temporary work, then maybe there's different contracts or different vendors or things like that. And, and the point was trying to make the, the SOW vendors move to a deliverable based thing. Even if they're building their SOW saying, hey, we're going to get nine people at $175 an hour for six months and that equals this. And then we're going to do it every month uh, for a sixth of it to, to pay it out. But at least there's deliverables where now they have some skin in the game and we're not paying them if they don't deliver to what that acceptance criteria is. So I think the other thing that you really have to think about as a company is, you know, what are we trying to get out of this and, and what is acceptable for our key stakeholders as far as that goes and, and making sure that you build that in. Um, uh, I'll say one more thing, cause I just thought of something as well. One thing too, where these systems are awesome and where the SOW module is awesome is the integrations um, with, with other systems, right? Whether it's timekeeping, whether it's budgeting, or whether it's doing those things internally, I think it's also asking questions about, hey, what is the process that we have today? Why do we have that? And can this improve it or make it better? Because there are a lot of um, old processes. Um, and, and really, the reason I say integrations is because something I've worked at for a long time is trying to make sure that people only do things in one system, right? I don't want a worker to enter time in two systems. I don't want a budget approval in two systems. Those types of things you really need to think about as to how can we integrate those? What is the possibility to do that? And um, some of those things are very technically difficult, right? And so getting um, referrals from people who are trying to do the same thing and validating with them are some of the best conversations I've ever had. Hey, MSP or VMS told me I could do this. What is your real life experience? Right. And then they come back and sometimes it's great. And sometimes it's like, oh, oh man, it's two years and we still haven't been able to do. So I think, um, you know, build up a community and talk to some people as well. Just don't believe everything the salespeople tell you. No, I love that. So I think let me just kind of recap that is making sure you understand why, right? Is it for data? Is it for function? Is it just pushing staff aug versus deliverables or so? Like, what's the real reason? Setting long-term expectations. This is not a six months. We've hit, we've nailed it. Mission accomplished. This is a one to two year. Do we get cost savings? Do we centralize? Are people on board? Do we have the data? So the value proposition needs to be a long-term executives are not going to see this turnaround in nine months and may hear complaints until you get there. Sure. Um, and then the last idea is just work with your network, right? So work with the network to say, what did that person sell me versus what actually happens? How does it implement? But like really go get the real stories from people who are in a safe spot, not to, not to like to, Hey, was this terrible, but to really find out things that you should be thinking of and testing against the entire time. So you do set the right expectations. Is that a good summary? Yeah, I think that's great because the, the thing that we have to remember too is my goals are so much different than my, my clients and my stakeholders, right? At the end of the day, they just want to get that person there or that project team staffed and, and get it done, right? And, and they don't care if it's temporary or SOW or any of this. So, you know, that's the thing I like about the centralized management of this is 
you get a small team of experts that can provide that level of service, right? Whether it's, it's white glove, whether it's self-service, but you've built up some of that capital um, to provide that because that's a hell of a lot easier than trying to train 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 people, right? Users of contingent workers as to what is to do. And it's just not worth it. I think the other thing too is, especially in this day and age, there's so many people moving through different positions and different companies that a lot of that information isn't retained. Or, hey, even if I did a training six months later when I actually need a contingent worker, it's like, well, what do I do? I don't remember that. So, um, you know, thinking about what are ways that the system and the process can allow you to get through that more. And then it, it helps support some of the goals that I have either in HR or procurement. So, you know, I don't tell them that because there are some managers that don't care about cost savings, right? That's, that's the finance people, right? So, so sometimes just be aware to what those things are and, you know, I'll relate it to a resume since we're all in the business, right? I remember I used to have a resume that was two or three pages and I had all these different things. And when I was applying to a position, I went through and said, these things don't apply. And I took it off my master one. Then I saved it and I, I did it for that. It's kind of like, what are all the, the values that I could have for this? And then as you're talking to people, you know, picking out the ones that that really impact them. And it's cool because you've got all this stuff that works for the organization, but it's obviously not going to apply to every individual the same. Yep. No, and I, I completely agree with you. We, we expect everyone to be subject matter experts in everything. And so the system and process that you have in place should make it very simple for managers. And my own, kind of like my last thought on this is if you're having an MSP, take care of this on your behalf make sure you are interviewing the people who are coming on board who are supposed to be the experts, right? Like the assumption is these guys know better or whatnot. So making sure you've kind of tested out. Yes, they know they can speak to it over the phone, over email and in the system, right? The worst thing you can do is set this all up and expect the team to be on board and they're just not quite right to go live. So make sure that you actually are interviewing the people so you feel like you, you can stand behind them. Saad, wanna close this out? I know we're over time. Yeah, thank you all for joining. I dropped Erica and Steven's LinkedIn in the chat if you want to connect with them, ping them if you have any specific questions afterwards. But thank you all for joining. We'll be having more of these um, in the coming weeks. So be on the lookout for more. And thank you all again. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Take care. Thanks, Steven. Bye.